Please be seated. Hey, I want to welcome you to Grace. I'm really glad that you're here. I want to ask the ushers to come forward and take our offering. This is our time to be able to uh, invest in the work that God is doing through uh, Grace Community Church. If you're a guest or visitor, I want to encourage you to take the cards in the seat pocket in front of you and fill those cards out and let us know that you've been here. We love to know how we can serve our guests and visitors. Uh, there are two plexiglass containers. You can put those in the containers at the back of the auditorium or you can put them on our connect table out in the atrium. Uh, but that would really serve us if you, would, if you would do that. Just let us know that you've been here. I want to invite uh, Dale Willis to come forward. Um, we uh, just had a, uh, a team go to Cuba, and uh, some pretty incredible things uh, happened there in Cuba. And uh, we, Dale, we've been in Cuba for about 15 years, and this was a different trip because Hurricane Irma had gone in and, uh, and ravaged the northern coast of Cuba, which included many of our partners. What kind of devastation did you see when you were there? Rod, we didn't really know what to expect when we got off the plane. Uh, we had had some communication with Leo and some of the pastors, and we had heard of some damage, and we knew that it existed, but we didn't know the scope of it until we got there. And it was extensive. It was worse in some areas than others, obviously, but uh, many mission points blown completely away, many roofs gone on some churches. Uh, a lot of our the congregations of the churches over there, their homes suffered significant damage. And uh, it, was, it was very, very devastating. So we take for granted that in, in, in our country, if there is devastation like a hurricane, that FEMA will come, that uh, governmental agencies are going to be quick to provide things. Did the Cuban government come and help out? Absolutely not. Uh, the Cuban government poured their money into Havana and the resorts to get the tourism money flowing again, completely disregarded the damages and the, the needs of those who were in the agricultural areas, a lot of those the cities that we have churches in, that did not happen. But in, in contrast, you saw something incredible with the body of Christ. Town after town, church after church, pastor after pastor that we visited with, we heard stories of how the morning after the hurricane, the pastors, their families, their congregations hit the streets to serve their communities. Um, that's, the, that's the talk right now in those communities is how the church responded to the needs of those people that had lost so much. So these are people who, who have nothing, who have nothing to give, and yet they're out there giving what, what, what little they do have, and they are changing the culture in that, in that area. That's exactly right. It's, it's difficult to refer to a hurricane as a blessing, but it indeed was. Uh, these communities were able to see over the days after the storm what being Christ-like looks like. Uh, that's exactly what our pastors and our churches did. They fed people. They ministered to people, believers and non-believers alike. Uh, we heard one example of establishing a, a, a quick temporary kitchen to feed the community and non-believers stepping in to volunteer to help do that. Uh, these Amazing. pastors, these churches are literally changing the culture in these communities. And there was a big contrast at one point because, uh, because the government came in and said, church, you can't do what you're doing. Um, a truck of food arrived from the, the southern part of the country to feed people in Sola. And the government got involved, brought the truck to the police station, stopped all the distribution. And our pastor there stepped up along with his congregation, went to the police station and made it very uncomfortable for the government. 
and the government responded, the local police responded, stepped out of the way, and that food was distributed through the church to that community. Great leadership. So we're going back to Cuba in the spring. We'll go back in March. And how many do we, do we want to have on that, on that team? Well, that, the, the spring trip is just Ed and I. The, the, next, the next date that we'll take a team will be next October. And we'll want to have five to eight people on that, on that team. Great, great. And in the, mean, in the meantime, you saw a lot of people come to Christ in this trip. We did. We <laughs> did. The first four days we spent going door to door in some of these, these villages and these neighborhoods with church members and translators. And the reception to the word over there is gaining traction, gaining momentum. And it's because these, these small churches are stepping away from self and diving into their community to show people what Christ does. That's the amazing thing. Everybody who goes to Cuba for the first time is blown away by the fact that people are so open. I mean, it's, you know, we, we did things door to door in August that, I mean, you could never do in the United States with such openness. It's, it was amazing. It was a great trip. Great. Thank you very much. Okay, well, uh, I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to, uh, to John chapter 1. Uh, we are starting a new, a new series this week called The Word Made Flesh. It's going to be a series in John chapter, uh, chapters 1 through 5. Uh, we'll spend the balance of the fall in John 1 through 5, and then uh, we'll t- take a little bit of a break, and then we'll tangle back into it in the new year. Um, really excited uh, about this, and part of the reason why I'm so excited about it is that in John 1 we find that Jesus says he came to reveal the heart of the Father. Later on in the book of John, Jesus says to one of his disciples, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So what I hope to do in this series in John 1-5 through is to reveal the heart of the Father through the life of the Son. Um, so, we begin this morning in John's, John's prologue, and uh, so while you're turning there, or maybe you're already there, I want to, want to tell you a story. Uh, last month, Cindy and I uh, saw an amazing video series called Chasing Shackleton. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it, but don't watch before bedtime because it will get your adrenaline going in a, in a, in a big way. So here, here's the story of, of Ernest Shackleton. Ernest Shackleton was an explorer in the early part of the 20th century. Shackleton uh, was an amazing seaman and sailor, and by the time he was in his 20s, he had a goal. His goal was to hike across the entire continent of Antarctica. So he, uh, he raised the money and he raised the crew. And to raise the crew, he, uh, he gave this uh, ad in the newspaper. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, Long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Now, you know, if you were, if he had gone to an ad school, he would never have written that ad. And yet hundreds of people replied to that ad saying, I'm in, I want to go. He finally got a crew of uh, 28, 28 people and they set off in the ship called the Endurance. Problem was the Endurance got down to the Waddell Sea and they got hopelessly packed in the ice and were there for many months hoping to be able to get out of the ice, but that didn't happen. The ice crushed the boat. The ice ended up sinking the boat. 
So they had to remove everything from the ship onto the ice. And then the ice began to melt. And at the last possible moment, they were able to launch the lifeboats and set off for Elephant Island many, many miles away. That was a brutal, brutal seven-day sail in ships that, I mean, I wouldn't want to be in those ships for seven days in bitterly cold seas. They finally made it after seven days, seven days in a ship like that. They made it after seven days to Elephant Island. Elephant Island is a, is a rock filled with snow and ice and penguins. And Ernest Shackleton realized there's no possible way we're going to get rescued on Elephant Island. So days later, he set forth with six others on this lifeboat to sail to another island, which was going to be an 11-day sail. And they sail there. This is obviously from the miniseries. They sail there. And that was an 11-day sail with, with bitter, bitter cold. Their sleeping bags got so, uh, got so worn out that they, they filled with slime. They had to pitch them over. That was their last source of warmth. They finally made it to the whaling station. And they made it to the whaling station. They looked they look pretty bad in that whaling station. And once at the whaling station, they were able to get a crew to come back to Elephant Island and rescue the 22 people that they had left there. Now, I will tell you, that this, uh, among all the rescue stories that are out there, this story is by far the most dramatic, the most dramatic. Why did Shackleton do all that he did to rescue his men? Well, there was one reason, and that reason was love. It was love. Shackleton was committed to those men. He was committed to his crew. He was committed to the point where he would risk cold, frostbite, danger, death, dysentery, etc., etc., in order to come back and to rescue these 22 people who were stranded on Elephant Island and who faced starvation. Love to the rescue. So when we come to John chapter 1 and the prologue of John, John 1, 1 through 18, what, what we see is a rescue that far eclipses the rescue of Ernest Shackleton and his 22 men. What we get is an epic rescue of God in human flesh coming and rescuing the human race from the predicament that it, that it got into on account of sin. So John 1, 1 through 9 is a story of divine love in action. Love does, love acts, love performs. And this is a story of divine love and action. And this occurs in three acts. In act one, John presents a person. And the person is God's word. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then the next time the word Word is used in John 1 is in verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we, we know that the Word of John 1, 1 is Jesus. Jesus is the Word of God. 
Why is Jesus called the Word? Why is that? The reason why is that in both Greek thought and in Hebrew thought, the Word refers to the ruling fact of the universe. Now, I know that sounds really, really abstract, so let me illustrate it for you this way. If you think about who the greatest quarterback is, you, you'll think about somebody who can take the snap quickly, somebody who can scramble in the pocket, somebody who is outstanding at passing the ball, somebody who's a good leader in the huddle. There is a thing which we would call quarterbackness, right? Quarterbackness is sort of a thing like what Aaron Rodgers has. It's what Tony Romo used to have. It's what Dak Prescott has. Okay, quarterbackness is the whole package. It's the ruling ability on the offense to be able to score points. Quarterbackness. But that's so abstract. You need to put a face to it. What face do you put to quarterbackness? Well, the best quarterback, I hate to say it, today is Tom Brady. So, so, you, so you, you put a face to quarterbackness. And the Greeks and the Hebrews said the, the ruling fact of the universe is the word. But that's abstract. So you've got to put a face to that. And, you know, here, here's a face you could put to leadership. Here's Nelson Mandela and Lincoln and Joan of Arc and Winston Churchill. You want to put a face to leadership. Well, the face that you put to the ruling fact of the universe is Jesus. He is the Word. He is the one who can take the will of God and bring that will of God into action. Let's continue with verse, verse 3. All things were created through Him, that is the Word, and without Him was not anything made that was made, and Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Now, let's see why Jesus is the ideal leader. Why is he the ideal leader? Well, first of all, what we discover is that Jesus is eternally perfected in love. Thought experiment. Have you ever, ever tried to think about what it was like before time began? When I, when I was a kid, this bothered me. And I can remember lying in my bed and thinking back, back, okay, before to where my, when my parents were, when my grandparents were, and when the beginning of the world was, and then back before the beginning of time, and I, I would just, I would, I would fall asleep. It was too much for me. But many of you thought about that. And how you think about that is very important. Um, if you're an atheist, you say, well, there was nothing before time began. Nothing. No love, creativity, beauty, Nothing. If you believe in the religions of the East, you believe there was only an impersonal it before time began, whatever that it is. If you're an adherent to Islam, you believe that Allah was there before time began, but Allah was lonely. Allah had no one to love. Allah was not loved. He was a solo, lonely being. But here's the amazing thing about Christianity. What the Christian faith says is that God is a triune God, and before creation, God was perfected 
in love. John 1.1 talks about this multi-person God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the implication of that is that the God of the universe was perfected in love before time began. John 17 tells, tells this a, 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 little bit, a little bit clearer, perhaps. Jesus prays, Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we, members of the triune God, are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. God was perfected in love before the universe began. That tells you something about the very nature of reality, doesn't it? Reality is not bleak and dark and impersonal and depressing and gray. Reality is bright and vibrant and loving because the God of the universe was perfected eternally in love. Now, I tried to think about, about a way to picture this. I want you to think about this for a second. Fifteen years ago, my, my sister and I were going through old slides. My dad, when he was uh, younger, took a lot of slides with his slide camera, with his slide camera. We ended up with lots and lots of slides. And I found a slide taken, of, taken on the day of my birth. Uh, what you're about to see is my mom holding a sign of my, my birthday date. I had not seen this slide before. And when I saw it, I was, I was blown away. There's my mom, March 5th, 1956. She's in labor. And my, my dad says, hold up the sign. <laughs> Let's snap the picture, and then we'll go to the hospital. My mom is not upset at him. <laughs> my mom's going with it. Now, you know what my immediate response was when I, when, I, when I saw that slide? I thought, wow, I was prepared for. I was, um, I was expected. I was planned for. My dad knew someday I would see that picture. I deeply appreciated that. Um, that's, that's you. That's you. Because the God of the universe knew the date of your birth. The God of the universe knew the date of your new birth. The God of the universe knew the date that you would be filled with the Holy Spirit. You were planned for. You were expected. You were invited into the loving circle of God's triune oneness. Let me put it to you another way. Uh, we celebrated the birth of our 10th grandchild this past week. How fun is that? So Cindy is in Seattle, and it just so happens that all 10 of our grandchildren are there in the house while she's holding our little granddaughter. And, you know, when I, when I, I saw Cindy with our granddaughter, I thought, what, what must our granddaughter sense with all the little bit of chaos around with the other nine grandchildren there and the four children and the four children-in-laws. 
this little, little girl felt, I'm, I'm included in the circle of a loving family. That's you. You've been invited into the circle of God's eternal love. One of the reasons why this is such beautiful language is that this is, this is beautiful poetry. And here's the way the poetry of the verse goes. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with the Word. You, you see how the poetic structure of this? This poetry is designed to uplift us into the joy of a big God who is eternally loving. You've been called into the circle of His love. And the, the point is to rejoice in that and to be able to, to love God back. Now we see something, <clears throat> something else about the Word. The Word is not only perfected in love, but the Word creates beauty for the people whom He loves. The Word, Jesus, creates beauty for the people that He loves. Look again at verse, verse 3, in Him all things were created. In, in who? In who? Uh, all things were created through Jesus, and without Jesus, not, what, not anything was made that was made. Now, first century readers who listened to this would have been amazed by something quite obvious, and, and that is the triune God creates in community. The triune God creates in community. It wasn't like the Father was creating and Son and Spirit were, were kind of looking over his shoulder going, awesome, that's, that's cool, way to go. Way to, way to go. It's awesome. They create in community. And what we find is that God the Father was the planner of creation, like the architect. God the Son is like the general contractor. He's the one who does the actual work to get creation in place. And God the Holy Spirit is the one who brings God's hospitable presence into the creation. Father plans, Son executes, Spirit creates the sense of the presence of God. God creates in joyful community. Think about a married couple. A married couple creates in joyful community. A husband and wife come together to create a new life, a little baby, and obviously they do it in community. Husband and wife are designed anatomically. They're designed emotionally in order to joyfully create life, and then nine months later, new life comes into the world, and that life is celebrated. Couples create in joyful community. The God of the universe creates in joyful community. But what they create is designed to be beautiful, to be extremely beautiful. So, the ancient people who would read this in the first century would, would have gone, okay, I, I get that, all things I can see, I can observe nature. Ancient people obviously would observe how a tadpole becomes transformed into a frog. And the people who thought about the all things, God creates all things, would have recognized the creative genius of the triune God. How much more should we who understand science revel in the beautiful creation that God makes. 
I think about that, for instance, when I think about the anglerfish. Uh, You've got to have a sense of humor to create this anglerfish. These anglerfish are down, way down, way down deep where it's dark. And God created them with lights. Lights. Now, you know, I know that you know, we got the whole evolutionary thing, you know, that people you know, kind of figure, wait, wait, didn't this evolve? Let me tell you something. Jesus made it abundantly clear that God created the universe out of nothing. He created the kinds. That took some genius to create that. But he also creates the flying fish. Remember the first time I saw the, a flying fish in the Grenadine Islands in the Southern Caribbean, saw these things flying over the water. The agility of their ability to fly blew me away. And that same God also creates the blue whale. So you think about this God who creates in community, and He loves to create beauty. God creates some things beautiful with smiles and other things beautiful with frowns. Still beautiful. And God loves to create beauty at the macro and micro level. Here's a galaxy on the macro level. He creates in circles. But the cloud of the electron at the subatomic level is also beautiful, and God also creates in circles, creating beauty. Who but God could have created a thing like the bombardier beetle who has the ability to spray poison out to protect from enemies, and yet that poison does not destroy its forelegs because its forelegs have special enzymes that protect it from the poison. Who but God could do something like that? So when you see the character of this God who loves you, what you realize is that He loves you, invites you into the circle of His triune love, but He also creates beauty as an expression of that love. You know, we were, we were in Russia many years ago. We were sharing the gospel door to door in Russia, and Russian architects have no concept of beauty. No concept of beauty. It was just a gray, drab, cinder block world. Now, Russian architects prior to communism created an exquisite beauty. The churches in Russia are phenomenal. But under the atheism of communism, architecture went way downhill. Okay? God demonstrates His love in, to you in the creation of beauty. And again, we look at a guy like Van Gogh who creates beauty. What do you know about Vincent Van Gogh by looking at this? What do you know about him? The artist appreciated beauty. What do you know about God? He's an artist who appreciates beauty. And again, we go back to the, to the poetry. All things were created through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. There's a beautiful, simple piece of Hebrew poetry that's designed to, to bring us up to a place where we see the joyful, playful, creative beauty of the God of the universe. That's why the next statement is shocking as you read the poetry. This God who is perfected in love, who creates in community, now makes himself vulnerable to heartache and pain. Heartache and pain. 
That doesn't sound right. I mean, that doesn't sound right. We'd expect that a God so great who creates galaxies and like electron clouds and blue whales and anglerfish, that he would not make himself vulnerable to heartache and pain, right? We would expect that. He'd be so powerful. Why would he allow himself to be vulnerable to heartache and pain? And yet that's what we see. John 1, 4, and 5, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. You stop there and you think, absolutely, in Jesus was life, and that life is the light of men. So far, so good. Got it. That's awesome. That's the next phrase that shocks us. The light shines in the darkness. Wait, darkness? Wait, that, what do you mean darkness? Well, yeah, we live in a, we live in a fallen world. Our world is, is, is painful. Our world has suffering in it. We're fallen. We sometimes cause the pain of others. We sometimes cause the anguish even of those whom we love. That's why it's so amazing that this God who invites us into the circle of His triune love and this God who creates with beauty is a God who allows Himself to be vulnerable to heartache and pain and darkness and difficulty. Jesus shines in fallen human cultures. Jesus even shines into our fallen human hearts. Now, if, it, if you were in Jesus' place and you were shining and people, people confronted you with their sin, what would you do? Would you, wouldn't you say, hey, do you know who I am? I'm shining in the darkness here, and do you know who I am? Do you know who you're dealing with? Do you know where I have been? you know where I've come from? I'm not going to have to put up with that. And Jesus does not do that. He makes himself vulnerable to rebellion, and, and, and he risks rejection. Doesn't that make you love him even more? Because it's the nature of true love to risk. And I want you to notice that the poetic structure is now broken in verses 4 and 5. It's broken. Why? Because humanity has been broken by sin. Act one is a description of the Word. The Word is, lo uh, the word is a lover. He invites us into the circle of the triune God. The Word is a creator. He creates beauty as an expression of His love. That's act one. And now we wonder, well, if there's darkness around, like how are people going to really understand who the Word is? Well, we have a witness, and act two is the witness. John, the gospel writer, presents the witness to God's Word, who is John the Baptist, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Now, let's think about John the Baptist for a moment. John the Baptist was born about six months before Jesus, to parents who were very old. For many years, Zechariah and Elizabeth assumed they would not be able to have children. And then they, they had John the Baptist. He was the miracle child, the child that was announced to Zechariah in the temple as he was, as he was making uh, an, an offering. 
John the Baptist was, what grew up in this little tiny village called Ein Karem in the hill country of Judea. That's Ein Karem in the early part of the 20th century. It was a very, very small village in the days of John the Baptist. He grew up in total obscurity, John the Baptist did, total obscurity. I will tell you that he was not voted most likely to succeed by his high school classmates. He was not the star quarterback on the football team. Nobody knew John the Baptist. He grew up in total obscurity. And John the Baptist's mom and dad probably died when John the Baptist was young. I can't say this for sure, but I suspect that John the Baptist probably was brought up by the Essenes in Qumran. He was not an Essene. He was not part of that sect, but he was probably brought up there because John the Baptist uh, dwelt in the wilderness, most likely apart from his parents. And the only settlement in the wilderness in that area historically was Qumran. And the people in Qumran often brought people in to raise them up, especially, especially orphans. So Luke 1 verse 80 says, John the Baptist was in the wilderness until he began his ministry as the witness to Jesus. John the Baptist was this amazing guy, you know, who, who looked like a prophet. He wore, he wore animal skins. He wore a rugged leather belt. He, he, he ate insects. And we're not talking the trendy insects that you can buy from ediblinsects.com, the insects that are clean and come packaged and ready to eat. He picked these things off of trees, and he munched on them, and he ate wild honey kind of a paleo-type type diet. And John has the message of a prophet. His, his message is a calling to repent because something incredibly big is going to happen. God's kingdom is going to break through in a person, in the person of Jesus. And when Jesus does show up, he has the prophet's message about Jesus. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of of the world. His message is a message that anticipates what Jesus is going to do on the cross. Here's the amazing thing about these, about these, these verses, um, that John's, John's prophetic work is not just to Israel. Do you notice that in there? It's not just to Israel. He came that all might believe through him. You know, Old Testament prophets were directed primarily to Israel. John the Baptist is addressing this to the entire world. It's an anticipation that the entire world is going to come to know about, about Jesus. And indeed, you know, John, who writes the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation, you know, in John 5 verse 9 says, Jesus, the, the depiction about Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and people are worshiping Jesus, you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It's an anticipation that all will come to believe. Here's, here's the genius of God. The Son of God comes. He is the creator. He invites us into the circle of triune love. And he comes into darkness. Who's going to recognize the Son of God? Well, we have a witness in John the Baptist. And I will tell you, God loves to send witnesses to speak 
about Jesus. Witnesses always have two stories. Story number one is their story. And John is really good about telling his story in, in, in John chapter 1. Story number two is Jesus' story. And John is really good about telling Jesus' story in John chapter 1. Witnesses always have two stories. You, you're here this morning, and if you know Christ, you are a witness. And you've been given two stories. Your own personal story and the story about Jesus. So Jesus is the Word, and the Word has a witness. And now we come to the th- Act 3, and Act 3 is that God's Word thrives in dangerous places. His Word thrives in dangerous places. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This is the first time the word world is used in the Gospel of John, and if you were putting this to music, this would be where the, where the minor key comes in. <laughs> because whenever you hear this word world, you have a robust, multiple uses of this word, especially in the Gospel of John. The word world in John means sometimes, broadly speaking, the cosmos, our planet, our solar system, our galaxy, our universe. This term used that way is something good. But sometimes the word world can refer to something that is bad, like the world of lost humanity, humanity that is alienated and estranged uh, from God. And John is using this word in a poetic double sense. And the po- I'll, I'll paraphrase the poetic double sense this way. Jesus came into His orderly creation, and that's good, but His orderly creation is fallen, and that's, that's bad. And this orderly creation that's fallen adheres to a system of thought that is fundamentally opposed to God. The true light, which gives light to every person, was coming into this good world made by God, but this broken world, a world that is fractured and marred by sin. And the way way He comes is stunning. He was coming into the world. It's a stunning thing because He comes in human flesh. You know, Jesus, I suppose, could have come in in a space suit that would protect Him from germs. They didn't have health insurance back then, right? They didn't have dental insurance back then. They didn't have penicillin back then. He could have come in a suit like this, you know, and and said, uh, I'm here for a little while, you guys. It's it's a dirty, nasty place. It's a dark place. I don't don't really want to interact with with you guys. I'm here for a short period of time. Space suit is going to be protective, okay? I love you guys. Take on faith. He could have done that. Now, he, he chooses to be incarnated into the womb of a 16-year-old girl from Nazareth before health care, before penicillin, before dental insurance. He comes before modern notions of compassion and justice. He comes into a world that is at a very dangerous time in human history. Herod killing all sorts of kids in Bethlehem. Why does he do it? It's because love risks. Love is willing to enter into chaos. Love is willing to enter into dark places and shine light. Love is willing to be an oasis of light in the midst of darkness. 
If you don't have a love that risks pain, you do not have love. You don't. So you go back to Ernest Shackleton. On April 16th, 1915, they arrived on Elephant Island after having sailed in, in that boat for seven days. Now the story goes that there was always a foot of water in those boats for that seven-day time period. And that water was probably about 36, 37 degrees, just above freezing. And the story goes that everybody on those boats had dysentery. And they were constantly sick at both ends. Shackleton says, we're not going to make it on Elephant Island. So days later, he leaves on a, a slightly more protected boat to encounter the same thing for 11 more days. Shackleton is close to three weeks in utter misery. Why do it? Because love risks, love acts, love does. You demonstrate love by your willingness to be vulnerable to hurt, heartache, and pain. Now, <clears throat> looking back over these nine verses, what's, what's John's main, main idea? Main idea is this. God uses witnesses to point the way to, the word, to, to his word to change the world. In a nutshell, that's what it's all about. God uses witnesses, that would be John the Baptist, and you and I, to point the way to his word to change the world. Um, what I find incredible is that um, you and I have a world. We have a world. Your world is your sphere of influence. Your world consists of your family, your friends, your job, the places where you live, the places where you lead. That's your world. The world did not, your, your world that you're in did not come about through random chance. God in His sovereignty has placed you in a world. You're in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, most of you. You're living here. You're here for a reason. Maybe, maybe you were transferred here with your company. Maybe you grew up here. Maybe you just like it here. Maybe you decide to retire here. Or, or maybe this is where you chose to live. But for whatever reason, God in His sovereignty has placed you into a city with a sphere of influence, with a network of people, and that, that is your world. And I think we need, to, we need to describe as realistically as we can what our world is. You might, might say, my world right now is my family and friends because I've got kids and I've got a, I've got a job and that's, that's my world. I'm describing my world. And I think the pattern of, this, of this, fir this first part of John's prologue is that you need to recognize that your world is a stewardship from God and that you are called to be a witness within that world, a witness of what Jesus has done in your life and a witness of Jesus' big story. So takeaway number one is, I would say, identify your world. Identify what your world is. 
I've got a, a friend who, who uh, always on the road. He's on the road probably probably 90% of the time. He said, my world consists of my, my very close-knit adult daughters and my clients all over the Midwest. That's my world. That's the world God, is, God has given to me. Describe your world so that you, you, you can visualize what, it, what is it that God is calling me to be witness to in this world. Second takeaway is if you're going to transform your corner of the world, you need to know your story and Jesus' story. Now, why do I say you need to know your story? Because you have a salvation story. And you can probably describe that salvation story, but not very accurately or not very specifically. Now, the reason why I say that is because I've, I've helped a lot of people describe their salvation story, and it is a hard thing to do for a lot of people. So if you're going to be a witness within your world, you need to be able to describe your spiritual journey with razor-sharp precision. So that if you were asked to share it in three minutes, you could do it. If you were asked to share it in 30 minutes, you could do it. You have a story. And it's very helpful for you to be able to know how to tell that story. You also need to know Jesus' story. You need to be able to know how to say it with razor-sharp precision in a brief amount of time. John, John did this. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You talk about an elevator pitch. That was amazing. That was amazing. When I was in Cuba in August and I was going door-to-door with my son and daughter-in-law and my very good friend, Hilberto, I realized again how I have got to be razor-sharp, clear in the expression of the gospel because I didn't have a lot of time. Husbands were coming in. Kids were coming in. Wives were wanting to call their husbands to dinner and so on and so forth. You got to know your story. You got to know you got to know Jesus' story. And here's the third takeaway. Don't be surprised if God asks you to share your story in a dangerous place. Don't be surprised. Because God loves to pour out His love into, into dangerous places. I've got one son who felt called to share that story in North Africa. And where he is is not, not super dangerous, but it's, it can be dicey. It can be dicey. And um, he loves being there. I've got another daughter who felt called to share the story in suburban Seattle where she and her husband are starting a church. Seattle is not friendly to the gospel. Uh, Don't be surprised if God leads you to tell your story in places that are not safe. The true light which came into the world, which enlightens every man. Well, the world's a dark place, and your world has pockets of darkness. And God will often call you into those pockets of darkness and say, I want you to share your story, and I want you to tell it well. John 1, 1 through 9 is a story about the drama of divine love. There's a lot of, a lot of epic stories out there, Shackleton rescuing his stranded men, the rescue of Apollo 13 in 1970, the rescues we've seen of, in Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma, whatever paradigm you can think of, Jesus' rescue is the epic rescue by which all others are measured. You have a world, and you are a witness to the Word in your world.
Father in heaven, we, uh, we bow before you and just say thank you. You've given us the privilege of being witnesses. Lord, I, I pray that we could tell our story often and we could tell it well. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, briefly, we've got some, uh, got some announcements.